It's the 24th of August, 2017. This is the Room Now we can review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, pregnancy tops the list. We have information about the safety of IL-1 inhibitors in pregnancy. As you know, the TNF inhibitors have sort of dominated the picture on pregnancy so far. There being class B pregnancy risk and, uh, and others being class C pregnancy risk, there's a lot of data about TNF inhibitors that's out there. Uh, very little data about uh, the IL-1 inhibitors led by Kinneret uh, and um, Ilaris and uh, Rolonicept. But um, one group got together and collected data on um, a number of pregnancies, specifically looking at their 11 paternal exposures to IL-1 inhibitors and 31 maternal exposures to IL-1 inhibitors. On the maternal side, it was 23 anakinras and 8 kanakinamabs. Uh, and most of the, for instance, the anakinra cases actually had uh, ended up in live births. I think it was 21 out of 23. Uh, a few of the cases of kanakinamab, I think there was one miscarriage. Uh, there was one renal agenesis uh, along with an ectopic neurohypothesis as a potential uh, defect. But overall, the experience was good. Um, and again, albeit very limited, there's some encouraging data there about the IL-1 inhibitors. Another study comes from the Scandinavian countries where a number of countries got together and pooled data on 435 juvenile idiopathic arthritis patients and looked at the incidence of uveitis. Uh, as you might expect, the incidence was 20.5%. 90 um, percent of those were asymptomatic and the predictors for developing uveitis was number one age. If you were less than age seven and you had JIA, you were more likely. Also, ANA positivity and antihistone antibody positivity were tended to be predictors of developing uveitis. Interestingly, it was the younger females and not the males who had a risk of developing uveitis. Um, a study from the Canadian, uh, uh, actually an Ontario group of rheumatoid arthritis patients, in fact, almost 4,600 patients looked at adherence to medicine. And in, in their data set, they showed that 59% uh, were thought to be uh, adhering to biologic therapy. I think that's actually pretty good. Although most of us think 100% of our patients take the drugs that we give them, um, the data is pretty clear. And I think with biologics and rheumatic disease drugs, it's quite disappointing. So 59% is not too bad, but at the same time, it's not too good either. And we have significant challenges in the world of convincing our patients about the efficacy, safety, and the need to take the medicines we prescribe. Interestingly, they found that if you're non-adherent, you're more likely to receive steroids, although the difference wasn't that great. It was 67% if you're non-adherent versus 56% uh, for the adherent patients as far as taking steroids. A Swedish early inflammatory arthritis study looked at the inf uh, things that would influence the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. They found that oral contraceptive use, either ever or uh, uh, past oral contraceptive use, uh, decreases the risk of acropositive rheumatoid arthritis. They tried to assess whether or not breastfeeding might also decrease this risk, uh, and they were unable to do that, and their resultant, uh, or their conclusion was that it really had no effect. So uh, again, the odds ratio of, of having acropositive RA was down about 16% uh, if you were exposed to a oral contraceptive. Uh, in the um, 
in the world of regulatory medicine, Ironwood, who took over the uh, the um, rights to Zerampic lisinurad uh, from AstraZeneca, Ironwood, who is developing uh, and promoting that drug, has now announced the FDA approval of the combined drug of lisinurad and 300 milligram allopurinol, 200 milligram lisinurad, 300 milligram allopurinol, all in one pill, and it's called Duzalo. It's a doozy. Um, the question is, do we really need the combination therapy? I'm not big about combination drugs, especially when we start mixing old drugs together and causing high cost. Um, and the, the, again, of course, lisinurad has to be prescribed with a urate-lowering therapy, either allopurinol or febuxostat. Uh, this is making it convenient for the patients and I'm sure quite expensive for the patients and the insurers as well. Uh, my main gripe with lisinurad is that uh, its use is predicated on proving that uh, the patient's not controlled on standard therapy when the evidence is really clear that most of us don't do a very good job of optimizing the use of urate-lowering therapy uh, and including good old cheap allopurinol. Um, but there are patients who may benefit from more aggressive therapy and maybe this combination would be beneficial. Again, how it's going to find its utility in the current marketplace remains to be seen. Um, I experimented this week on Twitter with uh, the use of Twitter polls. I've been looking at those recently, I think it's kind of interesting. And what I did first was I threw out a tweet that said that leukocytoclastic vasculitis, AKA palpable herpera, is most commonly associated with a lot of things, infections and drugs. And of all the things associated, actually antibiotics lead the way. In most studies, maybe as much as two thirds of cases are related to antibiotic use, including ciprofloxin and cefazolin, and you can go on and on, and uh, you know, uh, and penicillin-like drugs have been all linked to this, as have been infections for which patients receive antibiotics. So it gets a little murky there. But anyway, as I tweeted that out with a reference, I also um, threw out a question to the Twitter world, and the question actually comes from JAMA. And you can look in the current issue of JAMA and see this question that says, a 30-year-old female has non-itchy, non-painful, palpable purpura in the lower extremities and abdomen. Uh, she's had these lesions on and off for the last eight months. Um, and the patient has a history of hepatitis B that's been treated with antiviral therapy, tenavir. And it asked the audience, what would you do next? So I posted this question. And it, we got about 40 responses right away. Uh, and the choices were treat with prednisone treat with topical steroids, uh, reassure and observe. And the fourth answer, which 88% of people chose was the right answer, which was uh, evaluate for a systemic uh, illness and vasculitis. So uh, you might see Twitter polls. I think that they're interesting. Um, this week, we had a great article from Dr. Kevin Winthrop, who's sort of the um, infectious disease uh, uh, specialist to the rheumatology community and to uh, many, Kevin has a great deal of experience, he used to work for the FDA, he's now at the Oregon uh, Health Science Center in Portland, and he wrote a nice review article on the management and diagnosis of non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, NTM. This used to be called atypical mycobacterial infections. And in his nice, uh, relatively quick read article, he covers five questions, including um, when to suspect uh, NTM infections. He says, these are most common, almost exclusively seen over the age of 40 and more so in females. Uh, not, uh, people at higher risk include those who are tall and thin, those who have 
uh, chronic lung disease, rheumatoid patients are, are at greater risk, as are patients who are on chronic steroids and as are patients who are on biologics. You know, NTM infections outnumber TB infections in almost every population, whether it's HIV, cancer, immunosuppressed, RA patients on biologics, on, on non-immunosuppressed patients, NTM infections are more common and we should worry about these and uh, strongly consider these. How do you screen for them? There isn't a blood test and there isn't a skin test. Usually the issue comes up either based on symptomatology or an abnormal chest X-ray. Uh, Kevin Wright said, if you have an abnormal chest X-ray, you should consider doing a non-contrast CT and getting some AFB from the sputum uh, and, and seeing if you can prove the diagnosis there. There are American Thoracic Society guidelines on how to prove whether um, an uh, MAI or other NTM infection found in sputum is in fact clinically meaningful. And lastly, the management of these infections can be difficult. You never fully eradicate them. The most common amongst them is uh, MAC, and, uh, and he recommends that a, macro, a macrolide antibiotic along with, and that would be like uh, Zithromax, would be along with Ethambutol and Rifampin for as much as 24 uh, um, months may be indicated. As you know, uh, these drugs, when you have these infections of patients on TNF inhibitors, you have to stop the TNF inhibitor. And same could probably be said for steroids. So you should really avoid TNF inhibitors, especially when you have these and never go back to them because you never fully eradicate. And TNF inhibition leads to the um, flourishing of these bugs, especially the uh, mycobacterial species. Uh, so you could go to other biologics, which have a much, much lower risk for mycobacterial infections. And that's a that's found in other discussions on Room Now. So another great report I think came from uh, a follow-up to what was re reported at ULAR, and that's the report of the GoVibrant study. This is what happens when you give IV golimumab to patients who have psoriatic arthritis. As you know, golimumab in the subcutaneous form is already approved for use in psoriatic arthritis based on clinical trials that show an ACR20 50 and 70 response rate of 52, 32, and 19%. The interesting thing is that this much larger trial with IV golimumab gave much greater results. Uh, and of course, there's no head-to-head -head here, but it looks like IV golimumab is a throwback. I asked Artie Cavanaugh, the lead author on this paper, what he thought about it. He said, this is a lot like the old days when it was easy to prove a drug worked because the ACR 20-50-70 on IV golimumab uh, was 75, 44, and 26 clearly better than what we saw or what's in the literature for sub-Q. Now, there are no head-to-head -head trials. Whether you should use sub-Q or IV is really up to you. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out and whether they'll get an FDA approval for the use of IV Golomab. They also had good responses in the skin, POSSE 75 response of 59%, and they had great X-ray responses where those that were just on background therapy, placebo methotrexate, had worsening of their X-rays at two sharp units, uh, over, uh, I, I believe it was 52 weeks, whereas those that were on IV Golimumab had a lessening minus, point, minus 0.4 sharp units. So uh, again, very much as already said, a throwback to the old days when it was pretty easy to prove and you had great x-ray results. A great report was seen this week from Dan Solomon's group and uh, those at, uh, at the Harvard uh, uh, Medical School on treat to target uh, and whether it's being utilized by rheumatologists. 
In their study of 641 RA patients from 11 medical centers, and specifically the charts of 46 um, mostly rheumatologists, um, they looked at whether or not in the care of rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatologists are adhering to the components of uh, treat to target, which means uh, have a goal, uh, a measure uh, and, and treat to that goal, have the shared decision-making and show that therapeutic decisions were based on the goal. There are four components. And they looked for those and, and amazingly, they found that two thirds of the doctors and the charts they surveyed didn't meet any of these components, meaning treat to targets got no traction in the rheumatology community. Um, more, I guess, more shocking is that only like 0.3% actually had all four components in play. This is interesting because actually most of us believe that we do measure. Most of us believe we do treat the target. Um, our surveys from Jeff Curtis and I that we're going to publish soon, it's in press, and Jay Room says that 54% of rheumatologists do some measure ranging from a hack to a DAS to a gas to a CDI, whatever you, it is that you like to use. Um, but the evidence that we use that measure in decision-making in our study was very scant. A few other studies says also not likely. And this study says that you don't even do them. Uh, a lot of comments uh, after this was posted from rheumatologists saying that this is sort of a, uh, a waste of time or a scam or something perpetrated by industry uh, and they have no time for it. And I, and I don't believe that actually. It only takes 60 to 90 seconds to perform these metrics. Uh, and it's even easier to have a standard that you're treating to. And the standard should be low disease activities or remission. Uh, and so again, I think it's surprising that this advance in rheumatoid care and something that's in the guidelines for both the ACR and ULAR guidelines uh, has largely been discarded by US rheumatologists. Uh, a nice report from Olga Petrina was posted on uh, the analysis of lymphoma risk in patients receiving um, uh, TNF inhibitors or not receiving TNF inhibitors, all of whom having rheumatoid arthritis. And as she points out in the title, it's the rheumatoid arthritis and not the biologic or the TNF inhibitor that drives the lymphoma risk. Uh, they looked at data from nine registries and looked at those who are not on drugs versus those and really saw showed number one that RA patients have a higher risk of lymphoma, largely B-cell lymphoma, but also T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, um, um, more so than the average uh, population. And that RA patients on TNF inhibitors, uh, the risk is the same as if you're not on a TNF inhibitor. Hence, it appears that the lymphoma risk is driven by RA and is rheumatoid arthritis dependent, and as other authors have shown, is probably more dependent upon disease activity and inflammation overall. Uh, to close this session, I, we want to give a, a special acknowledgement to the loss of one of our um, leaders and colleagues, Dr. H. Ralph Schumacher, uh, Chief of Rheumatology at the VA Medical Center in, in, in Philadelphia, uh, professor of medicine, a leader in the rheumatology community, you know, uh, an icon in the world of gout and crystal analysis, a major teacher, clinical trialist, a guy who spent most of his of his life being both a scientist and a clinician. We've got a, a bit of a tribute to him and a link to two other memoriams written by um, a lot of our colleagues. So uh, we, we will miss Ralph and uh, those, many of you are gonna have to work real hard to fill his shoes. Uh, and lastly, go to the website and look at Therapeutic Update. We did one a few weeks ago on the Sarukamab FDA hearings. We just posted one 
on the Tofacit and FDA hearings, he's got almost 700 views in two weeks uh, on YouTube. So you can look at the new one on the website. Be sure to go to iTunes and give us a good score and a ranking, you know, the big thumbs up kind of deal, because uh, if, if, if we can be highly ranked, maybe we'll get famous. Who knows? That's it for this week on RoomNow.com. Uh, tune in next week for more good news.